we, we live in a time when we worry that society might well have slammed the door shut on the gospel. That our society, in many different ways, whether at a government level or even at the level of our very own friendships, we think the door has been slammed shut on Christianity. This is hard. And what that can have quite an effect on us as Christians, especially when we recognize the call of Christ on our life to be those who hold forth the word of truth, to go and make disciples, to be those who are, like we've seen throughout this book of Acts, people who proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. We can worry about that. We can take the verse that we've read here in Acts chapter 28, where the Jewish leaders report to Paul that they say, yeah, we want to hear you on this thing because actually people everywhere are talking, speaking against this sect. You think, well, that doesn't sound like a very positive view of Christianity, even as it was spreading in the first century. It doesn't sound that way at all. And I dare say, and I've heard it even expressed in similar terms, that people nowadays in Edinburgh say similar things. And those kinds of things can make us think that the door has been slammed shut, and it can make us apprehensive in opening ourselves up as we seek to hold out the gospel to people. We can be apprehensive in our sharing of this gospel. But the truth of the matter is that the door has not been slammed shut. In fact, what this passage shows us, even in a greater theological sense, is that even with the rejection of Jesus and the gospel by the Jews, in fact, God has, in this day and age, all the way up from then, all the way up to now, all the way up to the day when Jesus himself returns, in fact, the door is wide open. And this is a day of opportunity. And what I want us to see tonight, as we learn from this passage in Acts 28, that we need not be made to be timid by our assessment of our culture's receptivity. And we need not be put off, even if we hear with our own ears, people saying that they are speaking against this sect of Christianity. No, in fact, we need to make the most of the opportunity that is before us in this day and age that is a day of salvation, a time of salvation. What do we need in these times as believers, as Christians in this day and age? I think Paul set something of an example for us even in this passage. I think we see three things. We see urgency, we see clarity, and delivery. Let's walk through these together. Urgency, first of all, in verses 16 to 17. Here we see in verses 16 and 17, Paul finally arriving in Rome. Luke has disclosed in uh, chapter 19 that when Paul was headed for Jerusalem, he in fact has, had his sights on Rome. Jerusalem was a stopover. 
In chapter 23 and verse 11, when we find Paul locked up in a Jerusalem jail cell, Jesus appears to him and assures him, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Rome is the target. In fact, beyond Rome was the target, but he wanted to go there first. And here we see in chapter 28, Paul finally arrives. But what will Paul do when he gets to Rome? What's his plan? Well, it's not exactly been plain sailing for the Apostle Paul, has it? I mean, routinely this journey would have taken about five weeks at the right time of year, but Paul's travel plans were hit with the kind of delays that make Ryanair look good. 2.5 years is how long it took for Paul to get to Rome, and that's a long time. And when he eventually found himself on the move, he faced storms and shipwreck and snakebite, as we've heard recently. He is no doubt exhausted, and let's face it, we would really forgive Paul for wanting to rest. But Luke's narrative doesn't allow you to think that Paul is going to rest, because he moves speedily on and tells us what Paul does even within three days. Look with me at verse 17. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. Do you see what Paul is doing? You see a sense of this urgency here. In no time at all, he's putting this missionary methodology that we've seen throughout the book of Acts into practice again. As we've seen, it has regularly been his custom as he goes into any town or city to find those who are of a Jewish background to speak to them first and then to move on to speak to others. And Paul is wasting absolutely no time in doing so. No time to rest, no time to recuperate. Three days later, why the urgency? What does this tell us about Paul? What does this tell us about mission and sharing the gospel with people? Well, I think it shows us that Paul values the people of Rome more than his own comfort. I think it shows us that Paul prioritizes the mission God gave him above his own concerns. That Paul finds joy in pursuing eternal things above temporary things. Now, I wonder if that same sense of urgency can be seen in us. We, the people of this fine city, I think we can be experts at wasting time. You don't think so? I mean, we can easily, I think, overplay our need to rest. We can easily underestimate, I suppose, the cost of our lack of intentionality, even in trying to find opportunities to share the gospel with people. But ultimately, when it comes to sharing the gospel, there is ultimately no time to lose. Complacency should not be entertained when lives are being lost. Laziness ought not to be excused when people are dying in their sins. Sluggishness should be viewed as costly when people are living in ignorance of God's. And I wonder if me, like me, you, you're challenged by that. Challenged by Paul's urgency. I was challenged by that even as I sang that song, Facing a Task Unfinished, this morning. Those are strong words to sing. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to rest. I'm not saying that we need to spend every waking minute arranging meetings or having meetings with people in order to tell them the gospel. 
what I am asking is that we consider ways that we might take our sense of urgency up a notch. Because the reality of the fact is that we have received the gospel. Yes, to enjoy it, to rejoice in the Lord God and his love, but not just to receive it and enjoy it, but to pass it on and to make the most of the opportunities that are ours to do so and to make the most of the time that we have now to do so. There really is, in a sense of urgency, no time to lose, no time to waste. And I don't think we will regret being a little less complacent and a little more focused when we get to heaven. The door of opportunity is open. Therefore, we can exercise this urgency. Salvation is available to everyone while we await the return of Jesus. That's why I think the first thing that we see here in the Apostle Paul is urgency. The second thing is clarity. We see this in verses 17b through to 22. Look with me here. When the Jewish leaders gather, it's interesting that Paul doesn't immediately launch straight into a gospel message as such. Uh, Like any good builder, actually, he's working hard to clear the ground of any obstacles that might impede his proclamation of the gospel when he gets to it. For a start, well, we might ask them, what in this situation, what do we think might have stood in the way of these Jewish leaders being receptive to the gospel that Paul wanted to share? What are the barriers in the way? Well, for a start, Paul's in change. In chains. What's the explanation for these very obvious chains connecting Paul to the very obvious Roman soldier in the corner? Why is this guy a prisoner? What's he done? He must have really upset someone, maybe even the Romans, to end up here. But I think the main obstacle to their receptivity would be their perception of the Apostle Paul himself. From what Paul says in verses 17 to 19, he assumes that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem would have sent word to the leaders in Rome that Paul was an enemy of their religion. His concern was that they had then caricatured him as some grotesque opponent. And that's the very thing that might prevent them from hearing and believing the gospel. That's why Paul works really hard at the start just to try and straighten things out, to bring clarity to the situation. How does he do that? Well, let me tell you why I'm not in chains, Paul starts. I'm not in chains because, verses 17b, uh, I have done anything against the Jews. So they would say, oh, he's spoken out against our temple and against our law. Paul's saying, no, I haven't. I've been very careful to make sure that I did not do that. Then he says, let me tell you, I'm not in chains because I've done anything against the Romans. He says in verse 18, which reminds us that earlier in Acts, they actually wanted to set him free. But he appealed to Caesar. And thirdly, he says, I'm not in chains because I have any grudge against the Jews. In other words, I'm not appealing to Caesar in order to tell him how, how unjust you Jews have been so that you'll have it coming to you. No, verse 19 indicates really that he's not blaming the Jews for anything that's happened to him. Now, that's quite a bold thing to do, to gather people who have almost a caricatured picture of you, uh, to talk with them respectfully, and to clarify exactly where you're coming from, so that you then have the opportunity to express actually what you do believe. 
Now, I'm challenged by that as well. How many unbelievers do we know who have a really true picture of Christianity in their minds whenever Jesus or the gospel or our faith is talked about? I'm convinced that actually every unbeliever that I know has a picture in their minds when I talk about God and the gospel that looks nothing like a portrait. You know, a portrait should look like really like you're looking in a mirror. But it does, act, I think what they have in mind is actually a caricature. Now, caricatures are, it's just ugly art, isn't it? It's just, they're ugly things. Uh, during festival time here in Edinburgh, you see people sitting down at artist booths and posing for a picture where certain features, actually the ones that are clearly not the most attractive features either, they're magnified on this piece of paper, and then you have to pay for it. I think it's senseless. But don't think for a second that when you start to talk about Jesus, that the picture that someone has in their head is this wonderful reflection of true Christianity. No, I think bits of the image are magnified in their heads, probably by what they've heard in the media. Maybe, what they've, maybe they've had a really bad experience with another Christian, and that's caused some kind of grotesque formation in this caricature of Christianity. It never paints a picture of reality. So next time that we're together with non-Christian friends, I wonder if we might do some clearing of the ground and try and clarify, even asking them, what do they think Christianity really is all about? Speak into everyday situations in a way that that doesn't really fudge, but clarifies a Christian's view on something. We can do that. We can ask them, we can pitch in ourselves into conversations they're having, maybe on things like current affairs and the refugee crisis. What is a Christian's view in that? And speak knowledgeably into that. We might even do our own little mini market research. You know, last Sunday at church, we were talking about the things that people don't like about Christianity. What do you not like about it? And then get ready to correct the caricature. Because it'll come. Or maybe we could get together with people to engage them in conversation and clarify with kindness what you believe and what you don't believe is very important when it comes to the Christian faith. Have I ever actually sat down and explained this to you? This is a question you might ask them. You know that I'm a Christian, right? What do you think I believe? I'm just, I'm interested. You'll not offend me by anything you say. What do you think I believe? It's fascinating to ask that question and hear what's thrown at you. And it gives you immediately the opportunity to respond by saying, well, can I, can I tell you what I do believe? It's great. And once you've done that, you can then freely explain what that true picture is. That's what Paul goes on to do. When you look with me at verse 20, having established that he's not in chains for the reasons A, B, and C, he says, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this. It's this. Clarity. Making sure they know exactly why he's in chains, why he believes what he's believing, why he's willing to be chained to a Roman soldier and suffer this imprisonment. And this is a good thing. This is clever. You know, he's careful, actually. Paul's clever to use terms that invite them back and not drive them away. He knows that this term, the hope of Israel, is what every Jew looked for with heartfelt longing. 
it refers to the Messiah and his kingdom. The hope of restoration, the hope of good government, the hope of forgiveness for sins, of peace with God, and ultimately resurrection. It's what they looked for. So verse 22, that's why they say, we want to hear your views, they say. Even though they know that people everywhere are against this sect, they want to hear Paul's views. Now that should be our prayer for the people that we know. Even if we know that they have something against Christianity. Actually, if we have a sense of urgency where we're willing to engage them in conversation. And if we're willing to do that with clarity, to clear the ground of the caricature and so on, and then to actually speak with clarity in terms of what, what I actually believe, then that can be a wonderful thing. Now, what specifically can you do to understand the kind of caricatures that people have? How can we identify things that, about Christianity that cause people to put their fingers in their ears when you speak? Well, there are various things that you can do. It's not difficult. For, I've mentioned already that you can actually have a conversation with your friends and not to be ashamed of doing so. But we can do other things. We can read those Christian authors, maybe on blogs or in books, and to hear those people who have got, a, who've got their finger on the pulse of our culture, those cultural analysts who serve as well with some short writing, like David Robertson uh, from Dundee, and the Solas magazine or the podcast or the video, you can just Google that, S-O-L-A-S. It's fantastic material there to read and to listen to. If you want a wider, more global perspective, there's a chap called Al Mohler in the United States who is a great cultural analyst as well. Of course, you can read apologetic books like Tim Keller's Reason for God is a fantastic book which looks at all the obstacles or as he calls them, the defeater beliefs that need to be cleared out of the way in order for people to take the fingers out of their ears and have a good hearing from the gospel, for, of the gospel. That is important. Of course, the other thing that we can do, the thing that we must do, is really pay attention when the word of God is preached. To really devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching by studying it with other Christians together, by reading it on our own and reading books that help us understand the word so that as we grow in the knowledge of God, we are better equipped to give an answer for the hope that we have. Now, we should want to do this. We have no reason to be timid. The door of opportunity for the gospel is not slammed shut. It is wide open. Today is a day of opportunity. Salvation is available to everyone while we wait for the return of Jesus. And just as there is no time to lose, that's why we need a sense of urgency, there's no time for confusion. That's why we need to be people who bring clarity. Thirdly, there's no time to leave people unreached or unwarned. That's why when it comes down to it, delivery is what is needed. We see this in verses 23 to 28. There, of course, comes a time when the opportunity to share the gospel simply and clearly comes. So what do we do? What do we say? Well, what does Paul say in this passage? Paul does what he's always done in this book of Acts. He talks a lot about 
Jesus. He gets to Jesus all the time. He talks about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, making the point that Jesus is the hope of Israel that he talked about. He's the reason why he's in chains. Paul's in chains, in other words. He wants to talk about this Messiah King. So he talks about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. And he puts them together. Now, you won't find the term kingdom of God in the Old Testament. But you will find hundreds of references to God's rule, God's reign, and in particular, the promise of a future king. We could say a million things, actually, about the kingdom of God. uh, But let me highlight just the five things concerning the kingdom of God very briefly. One, the kingdom of God is not to be understood in geographical terms. It doesn't have physical borders like our nation would. It's a spiritual kingdom that knows no boundaries. Two, the king of this kingdom is described as the Messiah, which is God's promised anointed one, one who would rule justly, one who would rule forever. In fact, one who would be so sacrificial that he would lay down his own life, yet even the laying down of his own life would not be his end. He would see the fruit of that sacrifice by rising from the dead and living forever in heaven on the throne. Three, everything in this Old Testament concerning the kingdom of God points to Jesus being the king of this kingdom, this long-awaited ruler. His preaching declares it, his miracles confirm it, and faith in Jesus is ultimately how you enter this kingdom. And God invites us, fourthly, into this kingdom, making faith in Jesus the single determining factor in your inclusion or exclusion. Five, the kingdom will be preached even to this very day. And this kingdom will grow until the Son of Man, now reigning in heaven, reappears for final judgment and in the case of his faithful servants will bring joy like you've never imagined. But for those who have not put their faith and trust in him, death and hell, like you've never imagined. So what we see Paul doing here, like a good messenger, he delivers the message. He pulls no punches. He's not going in soft. There's no time to lose. There's no time for confusion. And there's no time for pussyfooting around. There is no time for people to be left unreached and unwarned. And we're called to do the same thing. That when we live with this sense of urgency, when we bring clarity to counter common confusion, we will find ourselves with these opportunities to share the gospel. And we ought to enjoy delivering the message, talking about Jesus, showing people how their greatest need is for a savior. As Paul was preaching to us just the other week there from Colossians about making the most of the opportunity when it comes, knowing the right thing that you might say in response to a question that comes. I had an opportunity last night I see you're moving building. 
why are you moving to a new building? So have you been talking to Paul Rees? Did you plant that question? And I had an opportunity just to respond. And I actually said to him, like your friend Russ, do you, want, do you really want to know? And he said, yes. And I said, no, do you really want to know? And he said, yes. I was like, yes. Here we go. Well, here it comes. And I said to him, basically in summary, that we believe that the Bible is true. And we believe that the Bible declares to us the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us of his great love. It tells us of the warning for those who do not believe in him. And I explained how people with the courage of their conviction concerning this word, who have a refusal to bow to the pressures or be squeezed by the pressures of our culture, to tear bits out of this book, that we stand on it and we declare it. And we talk incessantly about Jesus. Like we don't stop. And he said, oh. But it was just a wonderful opportunity. And when we cleared away the confusion and are ready to respond in that situation, we have those opportunities and we can just scatter that gospel seed again. And who knows what God will do with that? Who knows? We deliver the message that the Lord Jesus has taught. And we must trust that when we do that, it brings conviction. We deliver the message of his death so that that might bring hope to the one who knows conviction. We deliver the message of Christ's resurrection so that they might know that actually God has provided proof of the identity of Jesus by raising him from the dead. And we deliver the message of the choice that we all face to repent and believe. In other words, we clarify what a person needs to do in response to hearing the gospel. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, this is the only way that you can be part of this glorious kingdom. You can be a part of it. And to miss it, all you have to do is, well, nothing. Just walk out of here. Don't give another thought to it. But the door of opportunity is open even for you tonight to trust in Christ and to know that great love. If you turn from your sin and trust in his blood as it was shed for you on the cross, you'll find forgiveness. You'll come to know the hope of Israel, God's promised anointed king loved you so much he would lay down his life for you so that you would not have to face condemnation but you would receive grace and mercy and love the father's kisses and all the privileges of sonship adoption it's glorious trust in him now if you don't you should heed the warning that comes next in this passage because Paul doesn't just talk about Jesus and the kingdom of God's When you look with me at verse 24, Luke records actually how people are responding to this message. Some were convinced by what he said. Others would not believe. Now, Paul seems to be concerned that those who do not believe, because as they began to leave, he says something strong. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. 
ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Those are strong words. Now, I'm, I'm sure his, his concern is that people are hearing, but they're not really listening. And I'm sure we all know what that's like to hear something but not really listen to what's been said. This happens to be to the majority of men, I think, during the months of February and March. There's a condition called rugby-induced selective hearing. Now, basically, you ignore everything else and you hear only what you want to hear, which is generally the commentary on the TV. So I've had the experience, to my shame, that where my kids can be talking to me and I'm really not listening, I'm just wondering why Scotland lack any punch and attack. My wife can ask me anything and I'll say, "Uh aha, for sure, I have no idea what I've agreed to in the last few weeks. And I'm just watching the bank account carefully. Now, I'm hearing, but I'm not listening. And that's a crazy thing to do when you think that the offer, what's on offer is so good. It's incredible. So imagine me sitting watching the build-up to the Scotland-France game, just praying that we'll win. And, and just once. And uh, the phone rings, and I ignore it. But my wife picks it up, and she says, your brother's at the gate of Murrayfield. There's a spare ticket. You're only 10 minutes away. He'll leave it at the kiosk for you. Now, if I'm not listening, if I just go, uh-huh, I pass up a great opportunity, and I settle for something worse than what I could actually have. I settle for Brian Moore's annoying commentary when I could have the atmosphere of Murrayfield. Now, hearing but not listening can lead you, when it comes to the gospel, to miss something greater. That's why Paul sees fit to warn these Jewish leaders that they're hearing but they're not really listening. So he warns them. Imagine this like a conversation. Hey, Jewish leaders, you're, you're like reading Isaiah. Yeah, he's like our hero. Okay, they loved Isaiah. Well, you know how he was called by God to preach a message to the people? Yeah, he was really good. Yeah, well, do you remember how they responded to his message? Oh, yeah, they didn't listen. Tough ministry for that guy. Well, you are just like the people in Isaiah's day. You've got ears but you're just not listening. You've got eyes, but you're just not seeing. Your hearts are unhealthy. Actually, that's what it means in verse 27 when it says their hearts have been calloused. The original word in there means fat. Your heart is fat and unhealthy. It is not in good shape because you can't even take hold of this offer, the thing you hope for when it's laid in front of you on a plate with neon lights saying, this is the one. It's crazy. If only you would listen, if only you would see, if only you would turn and believe, now that would be the healthy response. Now we might think, why Paul say this? I mean, he's probably offended these guys and lost any chance of us. This is his second bite of having a conversation with these guys. He's probably just lost every opportunity to have a third bite at this. 
But I wonder if we've ever thought about this, that warning people, even though it feels like we're sharing strong words, even though we might even be accused of judging people, but the seriousness of what's taking place cannot be lost on us. When people hear the gospel and reject it, they are rejecting light for darkness, truth for lie. Surely we have to warn them of the consequence of our decision. I mean, imagine a little child being taught the you know, the green cross code, how to cross the road safely. And after, you know, they've been told about stop, look, listen, think, and all that. And then for this little boy just to go, I don't agree with you, miss. I'm going to do it my way. Rah, here we go. You would warn that boy. Well, Paul recognizes that the promise of Jesus Christ is that this king will one day return. And then all opportunity, the door of opportunity will truly be shut. But as it is, this door is presently open. And we are those who must undertake to have a sense of urgency in the gospel. To exercise clarity in our communication with people that we might just scrub out this caricature and present what's true. Remove the barriers that might stop people from giving the gospel a true hearing and then, when that opportunity comes, deliver it so that no one is left unreached and no one goes unwarned. The door in this country, in this city, has not been slammed shut on Christianity. Do not believe for a second that just because a government makes some rules that don't really look very Christian, just because people are rejecting him in many and various ways that the door has been shut. You will know that the door has been shut when the heavens recede and the Son of Man comes in glory. Until then, this is a day of opportunity. So let's speak out of this glorious father of love who holds out this offer of love and grace and mercy to wretches like us who repent and believe. Let's bow our heads.